0: The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org.
1: Anybody have an easy button? Anybody want an easy button? You know, the, the little red button that's labeled Easy. It's featured in those office supply store commercials. You're going through life, you're facing some task, something's difficult, you press the button and everything is easy. It's great. I could use one right now. If you have one, let me know. I doubt though that few of us really want a hard button. Same button labeled hard. You're going through life, things are going just like you like, everything's going smoothly, somebody presses the hard button and then oh, man, that's kind of tough. In our passage today, Jesus presses the hard button. And when he does so, it becomes hard to take. Not hard to understand. On the contrary, he's quite clearly understood. He becomes hard to take, hard to believe, hard to accept, hard to swallow. It becomes apparent that he does not match what people were looking for. That he doesn't come to offer what they came to get. We're going to see in our passage this morning. Today we're returning to the book of John, chapter 6. We left off back in December some weeks ago. Now in John, so far, what we've seen is Jesus held up to us like a jewel and different facets of him displayed. And we've seen different pieces of his glory every week. That's what we've seen as we've been looking on. But we've noticed that the people within the story, the people rubbing shoulders with Jesus actually, are getting a different picture. Opposition to him is rising in our section this morning in, in chapter six verses sixty to seventy one it 's a watershed you know what a watershed is where it 's a point where water either flows this way or this way it 's a watershed that happens today in this passage many most even of those who up to this point had been giving their allegiance to him today from this point on no more there's a great parting of ways here between Jesus and most people. He presses the hard button. People realize he's not what they were hoping, what they wanted, what they were expecting. Before I read the passage, let me give a brief summary of the preceding verses, and that's especially important today because it has been a number of weeks since we've been in John, and today's passage is pretty closely connected to the immediately preceding one. So if you will, look with me at John chapter 6. I give a brief summary of those chapters those verses in that chapter. Verse 59 puts a a bit of a a parenthesis on the preceding verses, kind of closes them off a little bit. If you look back at the beginning of the chapter, Jesus had fed the 5,000 men on the other side of the lake. And 5,000 men, we don't really know how many people there were total there. There were certainly some women and children joined in. But it was a miraculous event. He'd fed 5,000 men from just a little boy's lunch, two fish, five barley rolls. A miraculous thing, an amazing thing, for a couple different reasons. One, the obvious miracle of it, starting with just a little bit of food, ending up with more than you began with, and feeding all these people. Obviously remarkable. But more than that, he had fed this multitude of people in the desert right around the time of the Passover. that was significant, because in doing so, he looked a lot like Moses, who had first fed all the people of Israel in the wilderness right around the time of the first Passover, doing a very similar thing here. And the people there had seen it. They'd noticed. They'd caught the clue. And they realized, Moses, Jesus, wow. Moses was talking about someone with his words, and he was a type. He was a model for something. And Jesus is fulfilling that. I see that in him. And so the crowd got together. They were looking to seize him and force him to be king. Their great deliverer to take care of Rome, their, their main problem in their eyes. But Jesus knew what they were after, that they didn't understand him, and so he slips away. And after walking on the water that night, another miracle that we saw there in verses 16 to 21, we see there that he is the I am, uses that word there for the first time of several times in this chapter. The I am, which is the name of the Lord of the Old Testament. I am, don't be afraid, I am the Lord of the creation, the Lord of the water and the waves as he walks at night across the water to them. After that, he'd arrived in Capernaum, and the crowds that he'd fed the previous day catch up with him there. They're seeking him out. And what follows then in verses essentially 25 to 58 of the conversation that he had with them, which is a conversation that becomes a monologue eventually, somewhat like a sermon, Jesus is teaching the crowds. They come looking for him, verses 26 and 27, and he immediately makes plain that their focus is all wrong. They're after him, but they want him because they want bread. They want him to give them the bread again, to fill their bellies. And they think that if he can do this again, maybe he is the one who's going to free us from Rome. They've got physical concerns right here. it's where their focus is. And Jesus crosses them. Do not labor for the food that perishes, he said. Don't seek that out. Don't spend your life chasing after these perishable things. You might get them all and you'll still perish. Instead, labor for, work for, expend your energy for food, bread that leads to eternal life. You must have it. Focus on the spiritual realm, and the, the physical realm will take care of itself. He ties that kind of bread that endures to eternal life to himself, saying that he's the one who gives it. And then when they misunderstand, he clarifies it further in verse 35, saying, I am the bread of life. I am that word again. I'm the bread of life. If you come to me, if you believe in me, you'll never hunger, you'll never thirst. Physically? No. Spiritually? That's his focus. It's the pinnacle of this conversation, the identification of Jesus as the source of life, as the one and only source of life, as the one and only source of eternal life. Seizing Him, embracing Him, fully internalizing Him and Him alone is critical. You must eat Him, drink Him. Very graphic words for taking Him in and letting Him totally run through your body, have him full control of you. You must have Him. If you don't, if you seek Him for any other reason, any half-hearted acknowledgement of Him, if you search for Him to get physical things, you just be grasping at straws, still spiritually dead. You must have Him. It's critical coming to Him in faith. It's vital for your life. And it is, first of all, dependent on the decision of God. Point that He makes several times. Your focus must be towards spiritual life, you must seek that spiritual life in full, total allegiance to the Son. And though you are personally called to do so and are personally responsible to do so, the nature of the human heart is such that you are ultimately dependent on the mercy of God for the ability to do so. That was his sermon. He said these things while preaching in the synagogue at Capernaum. Verse 60. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Yeah. Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no avail. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Looking at this passage, it's important to realize who we're dealing with here. Many of his disciples, verse 60. Not just a few people, many, and not just folks who happened to be in the neighborhood and kind of stopped in at the synagogue. These are many of his disciples, followers. That's what the the simple definition of the word disciple is. Somebody who's following along, either physically or philosophically following, if they can't physically do so. These are people who are followers of his, who, who have heard and seen enough of him to cast their lots with him, in some sense, to some degree. Probably a number of them were from the 5,000. It says that the crowds had followed him from the previous day. Perhaps others were people that we've met in chapters 2 and 5 already who had been at the various feasts and had seen Jesus and in his powerful signs there. They'd seen him oppose the religious corruption in the temple, and they liked that. They'd seen him have obvious mercy on the hurting and the downcast. Seen some of these things. So they declared in one way or another, I'm with Messiah Jesus. They believed in his name, to quote chapter 2, verse 23. But as we saw there, there are two types of belief. There are those who believe, but don't really believe. And we're going to see here, there are those who are disciples, who are followers, who are not really disciples and followers. This is a major point of John's. Always trying to bring this out. There are people who are around and people who are there. And right now, a large number of folks are going to show their true colors. They heard him teach these things, and their response, verse 60, this is a hard saying. These are hard words. They're not confusing. They're crystal clear. They get it. It's just offensive and hard to swallow. Who can listen to this? Who can believe it? He claims to be the one sent by God, sent down from heaven again and again and again. He says that. But don't we know where he comes from? We know his mother and father. He's claiming these things, claiming to have a heavenly origin and authority over all things. And he is utterly insistent on us giving our total, complete hearts to him, a man walking right here, He claims that he is the only way to have this everlasting relationship with God that he's so intent on pushing us towards. And he rebukes us for for being concerned about things in our physical lives right here, things that are very naturally concerns of ours. And he threatens us with spiritual, eternal death if we don't turn to him. And then he tears away our personal sovereignty, our right to decide. That's about all I can take from this carpenter guy. Who does he think he is? God? God? Well, Jesus sees into their hearts, knows it within, the text says. There are several points in this passage that bring up the omniscience of Jesus. He knows things. He's not just reading the verbal clues in the room. He knows within what is within them. He knows everything about the true nature of these, quote, followers. So he turns things up a notch, reiterating in briefest form the essence of his sermon the flesh counts for nothing it's of no avail don't spend your energy seeking things here in the physical world real life is given by the spirit and it comes through my teaching that I was just saying that I just finished talking about that real teaching about me those words are spirit they're about the spiritual realm and they are life if you embrace them there's no backing off there it's repeating it, but still you don't believe because the Father has not granted it to you to believe. Wow. Verse 65 is pretty tough for some of us to take. I'm not going to say a lot about this. We already talked about it in the previous passage, and we're going to see it again and again throughout the rest of this book. But I do want to make something clear. Please notice that it, it's kind of right there on the surface. Verse 64, because of the presence of unbelief, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father grants him. Jesus is explaining for people why people don't embrace Jesus. He's explaining why people don't embrace him. It's because it's entirely natural for the fallen human heart to turn away from be distanced from him, to reject him, unless God first does something to grant that person permission to come, to work in him. So when you see a person come in faith, you'll know that God has done something. And when you see a person not come in faith, you'll know God has not. The decision is the Father's. Rests in his hands, not to cause their unbelief, but the decision is whether or not to liberate them from it or leave them in it. It's the Father's decision that's right there on the surface of that verse. He doesn't decide whether or not to send people away. He decides whether to draw them. They're already away. It's tough for human beings to accept. In verse 66, many of them didn't. They called it quits and walked away. And so Jesus turned to the twelve, differentiated from the disciples here. He turns to the twelve and he says to them, it's not really a question that's seeking information. He says to them rhetorically, you guys aren't going to go away too, are you? He's kind of calling them out to take a stand here. And Peter answers for the group, as frequently does. Correctly in this case. He doesn't always say that. It's amazing. Peter speaks here. Peter does not know half of what he's talking about, but he gets it right. No, we're not going away. Where else are we going to go? To whom else can we go? You have the words of life. He heard Jesus talking. He heard him say, my words are spirit and life. And he says, yes, they are. We agree. He doesn't know about Judas. We agree. We're staying. You are the Messiah. You are the deliverer. The same thing he heard. He had a different response to than most. We are staying here. A good response, a positive response that Jesus tempers a bit by alluding to Judas, who by sovereign choice was one of the twelve and also was the betrayer. That's the text. What does this have to say for us? Well, there are a number of things we could note here. We could note several points where Jesus' omniscience shines through. We could talk about the couple of references to the betrayer. Jesus is walking through life knowing the score The whole time, eating dinner with this guy for three years, knowing who he is. Talk about that. But I think there's something that's more significant here. It seems to me the biggest issue in this passage is the watershed, the great divide. We're in this section talking about how opposition is building, and here it's like a split. The masses have had enough after this. So I'm going to look at the foundational truth that caused that split, why, why did that happen? What caused the divide? And then, once we've looked at that foundational truth, there are going to be two exhortations that I think come out of it to us. So, a foundational piece followed by two exhortations. I'll start with the foundational piece first. The parting happened because God's plan of redemption is hard to swallow on purpose. God's plan of redemption is hard to swallow on purpose. The plan of redemption. His vast, long, and wide plan to redeem a people for himself, to deal with sin, to fix his world, all the while glorifying himself. That's the plan of redemption. It is hard to swallow. It is, at the very least, counterintuitive. And often grading on human sensibilities and offensive to the human nature. And it is that way on purpose. I'll say a little, little bit about the on purpose part in a minute. Let's focus on the hard part right now. Jesus was talking about significant elements of it in this passage, repeating some from last week. I'm not going to be exhaustive here, but think about some of this. Who is at the center of God's plan to redeem fallen people? Jesus is absolutely insistent that it is Him and Him alone. Alone. He is the Holy One of God, the chosen one, the messianic deliverer. Well, I guess somebody had to be. That, that's okay. But He pushes this. He pushes it, saying, I am. I'm not just a human being God picked, I'm God. Come in flesh. It's pushing the envelope here. Set down from heaven. I am not one of you. I am not like you. I am superior to you in origin. I have a unique relationship with God, my Father, not yours. I and the Father are one. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and God was the Word. You must not... Attempt to just give your allegiance to God in heaven while slighting me. That cannot be the case. In order to give your allegiance to God in heaven, you must fully give it to me, he says. Standing right here in front of you, a poor-looking man. God come to earth, and they say, what? Don't we know his mother and father? Didn't we play with him at recess and have sleepovers at his house and go on bike rides with him? How in the world can he claim to be my creator, Lord over me? He's from Nazareth. He claims to be the only way. He claims to be God, and that grates on Jewish ears. It's blasphemous, in fact. Well, that grates on modern ears, too. On our modern, multicultural, all-inclusive, everything's right, pursue-your-own-way ears. This is hard. He's the only way to be saved. And then it becomes apparent what he is saving. What he thinks he's up to in his mission. And that's hard. He doesn't intend to save his people physically right now. He keeps turning them away from that. It's not that God doesn't do anything in the physical realm. It's just that it's not, by a long shot, his main focus right now. He's after the spiritual realm. He refused to say anything about Rome. He didn't deal with their their empty bellies. Yes, he healed some people, and and yes, he fed them once, but he didn't come anywhere near alleviating all of the troubles of the world. Not even close. And in fact, he he chastised them for claiming that the kingdom should come now in power. He said, no, it's not here yet. Don't labor for perishable things. Instead, focus on the spiritual realm. You have something to to deal with in here. You need life, that's what I'm here to give, but it's this life. And you're all alike, he says. You, you externally righteous Pharisee, you must be born again from above. You, you externally unrighteous Samaritan woman, you must have living water. Everybody's in the same boat. You and I included. That was his concern. It's not theirs. It's not ours either. We can't see the spiritual realm, but we can see plain as day, right in front of us, child abuse, and poverty, and war, and injustice. And we can see the nice things of life we'd like to have. The nice homes that we'd enjoy living in. The pleasures that seem just out of reach. And who in the world ever heard of a deliverer who doesn't deliver to his people or his people from anything that matters? All this stuff I can see, it matters, and you keep saying no. Let's talk about this other thing that I can't even see. What kind of deliver are you? Deliver the goods in those areas, Jesus, and then maybe we'll listen. It's a hard way, and what he's trying to do is pretty hard, kind of offensive to us. Counterintuitive at the very least. And then there's how he planned to accomplish this mission of giving spiritual life. He alludes to it in talking about the ascending to where he was before, in the betrayer, last week about giving up his flesh and his body. How does Jesus ascend back to heaven? Through the cross. He asks rhetorically, what if you were to see him going back to where he was before? They don't know what he's talking about, but it's not going to be a reassuring thing when they see the alleged Messiah crucified, never that cannot be for us what kind of deliverer dies executed by the state the cross is a stumbling block to Jews foolishness to Gentiles it is all illogical counterintuitive even downright offensive God came to earth born illegitimately to a poor mother Claiming supremacy over all the prophets and all the scriptures. Demanding utter allegiance from the hearts of people. Refusing to follow their agendas. Going, and ki- going to the cross, killed as a criminal. All the while claiming supremacy. That does not make any sense. It's all pretty hard to swallow. Offensive. Various turns. And it is so On purpose. I hope that I can explain this and that you can see this because this on-purpose part is, I think, rather significant. It opens up to us something about God, about His nature. It is like this on purpose in order to manifest, to make known, to make clear, to manifest the glorious wisdom of God in designing this plan and the glorious grace of God in moving people to believe it. Let me say that again. It is this way on purpose in order to show off, to declare the marvelous wisdom of God in planning this and the marvelous grace of God in moving people to believe it. Think of what Paul said in 1 Corinthians. Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom, and this plan that God came up with thwarts them both. It's foolishness and it's weakness. But in this plan, the foolishness of God is shown to be wiser than the wisdom of men. And the weakness of God is shown to be stronger than the power of men. In this plan, God moves people and what we expect and what we find reasonable. He moves us out of the center and moves himself right to the heart. Right to the middle of all of history. Right to the middle of what we most need and most hope for. It happens in this way, a way that I came up with, not that anybody else did. This is preposterous. Who could plan this? Only God. Think about all the world religions, thousands of them. And in a lot of ways, they're vastly different. But at the core, they are all remarkably similar. You're going from somewhere to somewhere else, whether it be physical or metaphysical. And how you get there is dependent on you. God may help you. It's up to you. You, work it out. Progress. In some way, that's the common thread in all the world's religions because that's what people come up with. This plan is totally different. Counterintuitive, offensive even. It says you can't. You can't gain righteousness with God. You can't get to where you're supposed to go. So God had to come to earth and do it. It's a poster I saw that said, History is full of men who would be God, and it is only one God who became man. And he became man to do what we could not do. Make ourselves right and acceptable. This plan puts God at the middle to the glory of God. And actually, that's what we want. We were made to worship something. And this puts the thing at the middle for us to worship that is most worthy of worship. God. It's a marvelous plan that he came up with. None of us would have ever thought of it. And that highlights the fact that he did. What wisdom. And would ever believe it. It's crazy. A crucified Messiah, God come in flesh, Trinity? What are you talking about? Who would believe that? Only people in whom the grace of God has moved and acted. This plan highlights the wisdom of God and the grace of God. It's a marvelous plan, but it is hard it leads to the two exhortations, I think. First exhortation, I draw from the response of most people who encountered this hard plan. I'll give it to you as a, as a warning. Don't let your pride rob you of life. Do not let your pride rob you of life rob you of access to the wonderful hope in this plan that might not seem quite like what you were expecting. You have a lot to lose here. Now, where do I get this word pride? It's not actually explicitly anywhere in this passage. Well, think of it like this. Sometimes when we listen to someone explain something or teach something or command something, we're, we're kind of there all ears just taking it in. Not mindlessly, perhaps. We we might be asking clarifying questions or expanding questions or application questions. We're trying to get our minds around it to understand it. But the basic mental stance we have in those situations is this person knows what he or she is talking about. And as soon as I understand it, I am going to download it as truth. I am going to believe it. When I was in high school, It took me quite a while to get geometry. I didn't understand it for quite a while, all the the different shapes, kind of a different way of thinking and all these formulas and whatnot. I was wrestling with this for a number of weeks. It never once occurred to me that the reason none of this made sense is because she, the teacher, didn't know what she was talking about. I assumed the problem was within me. And so I'm working on it, trying to understand it, and my belief is that when I get it, I'm going to get it. And it's going to be true. I'm going to be able to accurately figure out the circumference or the volume or whatever. In a less kind of cognitive way, think about parents and young children. In many things, for many years of life, kids just implicitly trust their parents. As parents, we actually have to kind of watch out for this because sometimes we don't realize it. You you find out that Johnny thinks the moon is made of cheese because he heard his dad say that in a joke some months before and didn't understand it was a joke. So you've been misleading them all this time, you've got to kind of watch that sometimes because kids just implicitly trust whatever mom and dad say, that's the way it is. But something happens as kids grow up, doesn't it? We all know this. They start to see themselves differently. They have interaction with other people. They have other input, other information comes in. And they begin to develop a fundamentally different stance towards their parents. Kids and earthly parents, earthly kids and Heavenly Father, our Heavenly Father. No longer is the mental stance, this person knows what he or she is talking about, and as soon as I understand it, I'm going to take it in as truth. That's not the mental stance anymore. It changes. By mental stance, I mean the posture of your mind, like how you're approaching this mentally. That's not the stance anymore. Now it is, I know what I'm talking about. And you can talk to me, and I will evaluate what you say against what I say. And if it matches and I agree with it, then I'll accept it. Or if you can explain it in such a way that makes sense to what I already know, then I'll accept it. See the change there? Something different has happened. And that's, that's a normal and fine switch. It's part of growing up. You can't just believe everything you hear. We have to evaluate things. But something has happened. Me is now the authority. We all know people in which this is a problem. They think they know more than they do know. It becomes a problem sometimes, and it is definitely a problem when the person that you are sitting in authority over and evaluating is God. Of course, not everything that sets itself up as God actually is God. We need to be discerning. To make a long story short, and if you want to talk about this later, please come up to me. To make a long story short, God has spoken it is the scriptures, the Old and the New Testament, 66 books, Christ still speaks today in this book alone. This book is vital to all of humanity, even though most humanity doesn't think so. It is vital to us because it contains the word of the Lord. Now we have to ask it clarifying questions. We have to wrestle with it to figure out what it means. But our stance towards it must be, this is the word of the Lord and he knows what he's talking about. And once I understand it, I am going to take it in as truth. What a tragedy it is. When instead people say, I understand what you're saying, Jesus. I get it. But that does not square with what I regard as reasonable, appropriate, correct, enjoyable. It is a hard saying. Who can believe it? Not me. I'm out of here pride, you sitting over God, and it will rob you of life. Watch out. You'll miss life if that's your stance towards the Bible. You'll miss life in the long run and in the short run because of what this life is. We've talked about it before. Life is the reign of God over his people. And in the long run, surely there is an eternal aspect of that forever and ever God's kingdom will be over all of his creation there will be peace in the physical realm finally be peace amongst his people no wrath forgiveness liberation life can be had or can be lost in the long run but also right now here in the short run because this eternal life that Jesus holds in his hand it begins now It begins now as God comes and takes up residence in our heart, calls the shots for our lives. And you can miss it right now by turning away from Him and saying, I don't like your method or your goal or your person. doesn't seem reasonable to me. Not good. I'm leaving. He's the only, the only way to life. Don't do that, please. For your own good, don't do that. Cry out to Him for mercy. That's always the right response to God. Whether you're a Christian and you find, you know, I've been kind of setting Jesus off to the side for a little while myself. Or you're not a Christian and you've always had a stance like that towards Him. Either way, the right response is always, God, have mercy on me. I repent. I turn away from my sin and I come to you and I lay myself down. I surrender. Forgive, please. If you come to Him like that, He will give. Don't stand off in pride and lose life. The second exhortation is based on Peter's answer to Jesus' question, verses 67 and following. Here it is. Cling to Jesus even amidst life's confusions. Cling to Jesus. Embrace him and hold fast to him even amidst the confusion of life. Now, there are a number of different aspects of this vast plan of God's redemption that are causing trouble for different people at different points. I could talk about any one of them, but I'm going to focus in on just one that I think in particular causes us confusion. I don't just mean mental confusion like it's hard to get, but confusion in here, angst, if you will, a pain, a turmoil in here. His seeming refusal to focus on the spiritual realm can cause us problems. He does do things in the spiritual realm, but it's not like we think he should. Not when we think he should. This more than more than the deity of Christ, more than the crucifixion, more than election, this one hits us where we live. That's why it's often trouble for us. That's the issue. He doesn't deal in the spirit, in the physical realm, like I want him to, or like I think he should, like I think I need him to right now. That's the issue that faces the the teenager, the the young person who's trying to fit in with a group of people who want to do things that you know you can't do, and you think, man, I'm just ostracized by them. Why doesn't he give me friends? Why doesn't he make this easier? It's the issue that an adult faces when he's looking, or she's looking for a job. I'm thinking, why doesn't God give me a job? I need a job to provide for my family, to provide for myself at least, and I go from job to job to job to job, and nothing sticks, and he doesn't seem to be coming through. Doesn't he want to provide for me? Why won't he? It's the issue that a couple faces, having difficulty having children. Month after month after month, they often through tears say, God could do this, but he won't. Why not? It's the issue we all face when loved ones die unexpectedly. When tragedy strikes, when we read the newspaper, and life just does not look right. God, the physical world around us is a mess. Look at it. You could fill in the blank, but you don't. Why not? This is screaming out to me, demanding my attention, crying out to be fixed, and it's right here. You know, when my kid's bike tire goes flat, I either fix the tire or I buy him a new one. But you seem to keep telling me to ride on with the flat, or at best, you get a piece of duct tape and you cover up the hole so it'll hold the air for one more day. You seem to be a worse father than I am. What's the deal? It's hard Hard to understand intellectually a little bit, but, but hard in here, because you don't know how to embrace him. It seems wrong that he would be like this. Is he trustworthy? Doesn't he care about me? Is he all talk, no show? Let me just say that if that is you right now, I want to make clear that what I'm about to say right now is not going to be nearly enough. It's not. If it's you right now, it's, this is a real issue for you. then you may want to talk further about that, and I would love to talk more. But I do need to say something brief about it right now because I think this is a significant issue. I was helped in understanding how to deal with this question, not, not how to intellectually answer all the ins and outs. Sometimes there just aren't answers to it how to deal with it in the sense of how to sustain my heart in these circumstances by a relationship that I had with a man over an extended period of time who was dealing with a number of significant things related to work and family mostly. He was struggling with God's activities in these areas of his life or perhaps I should say struggling with God's apparent inactivity in these areas of life. And he would constantly say, why doesn't he Why won't he? Couldn't he? It even says like the Bible should want him to. Struggling there. But every now and then in our conversations, he would refer to this very text and say something like, and I'm elaborating here a little bit, something like, but where else am I going to go? Jesus has the words of eternal life. I'm sure of that. I know that he is the Christ. Not just on an emotional level, on a factual level. I know the cross happened and the tomb was empty. It's true. And I read about him and I see him and he is remarkable. No one like him. Not anywhere. He is the Christ. I believe it. I know it. And I also know that my sin is great. I know myself a little bit too and I see problems out there and I see problems right in here. And what he talks about, the cross, the spiritual realm, has dealt with that. That would kill me forever. And he has dealt with that. I know that too. So I'm kind of stuck here. I can't go anywhere else. And I'm left believing in Jesus by faith, not by sight. What I see out here is kind of hard. That's the mark of a genuine believer, a genuine disciple. False believers and false disciples, if, when, God presses the hard button, false believers and false disciples eventually find God's ways too hard to swallow and they leave and no longer walk with him. He will press the hard button. And most often, he'll do it in the physical realm because that's where we live. Sometimes in the theoretical, philosophical realm, but very often in the physical realm. And you'll find out who you are when that happens. So I exhort you, cling to Christ. Keep looking at him. Are you genuine? Are you genuine? Do you find yourself going back to Christ and saying, I don't know how to deal with this, but I know who you are. I see you, and I can't get around it. I know the tomb was empty. The cross happened in history. I know that. I see myself, and I see some change in here that you're working in me. I believe. Help me with my unbelief. It's the mark of a believer, a genuine believer, a genuine disciple. They come to him in these times, find a greater depth in their relationship with Christ than they previously knew. They find him to be more than they previously knew, more for them. It may not seem like it, but that hardship is actually, actually a blessing to you. It's God's vehicle bringing his grace to you. I'm not saying that It itself is God's grace. It's the vehicle that carries the grace. It might well be evil, in fact. But it is the means that shows you more of Christ if you hold to Him. It is the means that lifts Him up in your heart and mind and shows you, He can sustain me if you cling to Him. He'll strengthen your faith which is of greater worth than gold because it connects you to Him and solves your greatest problem within. So what do you do when His ways here in this world seem astonishingly hard? You cling to Christ. You trust Him. And you know that one day there is a time coming when He is going to fix all of this. He has dealt the death blow to Christ at the cross. He will finish it. He will when he's wise. He knows best when. I don't know. We should not presume to tell him when it's best. He knows. But he can be trusted as a God who loves you and cares for you. Look at the cross, his most concrete proof. Think about this. He wouldn't have saved you from hell forever Provided a means to come and live in your heart if he just wanted to mess up your life for the next 50 years. Why would he do that? You were already messed up. He could have just left you alone. could have left all of us alone. He's come in now, dealt with this spiritual realm now, at the promise of dealing with the physical realm in the future, on purpose, To show his wisdom, his power, his grace, and to draw out faith that is genuine from you. Faith that is not based on sight. Cling to him when life gets confusing. Christ alone has the words of eternal life. His words are spirit and life trust them trust him and live we're going to transition to communion in doing that I, I want to provide an opportunity for you to think and to pray to repent if you need to of where pride has kept you away from him to talk to him about what the hardship that you're dealing with is right now and Seek help. Fight to cling to Him. Ask Him for grace. Thank Him for the cross. Pray, and I'll close us off and move us into communion in a minute or two. Gracious Lord, tower of refuge and strength, call us to yourself in new and in vital ways this morning keep sounding that call throughout the rest of the day the rest of the week that we might be near you and cling to you and not hold ourselves off from you have mercy on us Lord we need you to change our hearts would you do that Christ's name. Amen.
0: Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcevfree.org.